Welcome to the Well Community Church Podcast. For more information on us and our mission to help people connect to God and to each other in every neighborhood, check us out at thewellcommunity.org or on our app, The Well Friends. Amen. Well, good evening, church family. It is great to be here with you tonight. As Mike said earlier, my name is Josh. I serve as our midweek and Fig Garden campus pastor, and I'm excited to be able to open up God's word to you tonight. We're going to be in Joshua chapter 2. So if you're kind of new to the Bible, that's, I think, the sixth book in the Old Testament, chapter 2 of Joshua. And he's got a pretty cool name as well, I think. So um, he got a question for you. How many of you have ever just messed up horribly in life, like at least once, okay? <laughs> okay, about half of us, that's great. Well, I, I am one of those people. I have messed up horribly in life. Have you ever messed up where, you, you know, you thought it couldn't get any worse, you couldn't go any lower, and then you did, and maybe it was a situation where you felt as if you're not going to be able to recover. Maybe there's no hope for redemption in your situation. Well, the good news is we serve a God who can bring redemption to any and every person. We're going to see that tonight in Joshua chapter 2. As you're turning there to Joshua 2, just a little bit of some of the things that we've covered so far. We've covered a lot, but you might remember in Genesis chapters 12 and 15, there's a man named Abraham who God made a promise to in his plan to redeem all of humanity. He told Abraham he was going to give him three things. One was descendants that were more numerous than the stars of the sky or the sand of the seashore, who we now know to be the Hebrew people, the Israelites. He said he was going to give him a, a land for those people, which would be the promised land, the nation of Israel. And he said that he would bless the entire world, all the families of earth, would be blessed through Abraham's descendants, which we now know is, of course, Jesus, who came in the human ancestry of Abraham and as the Savior of the world has truly indeed blessed all of humanity. But over time, the Hebrew people, the Israelites, they became slaves in Egypt. For over 400 years, they suffered oppression. And they cried out to God for help. And when God heard their cry, he raised up Moses to deliver them. And he sent plagues on Egypt because Pharaoh didn't want to let the people go. But finally, they were set free and they came to the promised land. And once they were right there, right on the the husk of entering into this promise of the land, they lost their faith in a faithful God. And they grumbled against him and they turned to idols. And so they found themselves wandering in the desert then for 40 years. And uh, the last couple of weeks, as we've looked at Joshua chapter 1, we see that Moses has died. Joshua, who has been the right-hand man, the the personal aide really to, to Moses, has now been raised up to lead the people. And there's no job harder in the world than following a man named Moses and his footsteps and his shadow. So God tells Joshua three times in chapter 1, be strong and courageous. He needs strength. He needs that courage to lead strong and that he would find that strength as he meditates on the word of God. And then last week, Mike showed us how Joshua begins to lead strong by going on the east side of the Jordan River. The tribes who had already settled there, the tribes of Reuben and Gad and the half tribe of Manasseh, he he tells them, "I, I need you to keep your word now. You said when you settled here, 
that when the rest of the tribes were ready to take the promised land on the west side of the Jordan, that you would join us. And the time is now. And the tribes all affirm together, we will fight with you. We will join you. And so that brings us now to chapter 2. So if you got your Bibles there, looking at verse 1, we read this. Then Joshua, son of Nun, sent two spies, uh, two men as spies secretly from Shittim, saying, go view the land, especially Jericho. So as Joshua looks westward, as he looks on the west side of the Jordan, there sits the city of Jericho. It's a fortress city. It's the key to the passageway to the central highlands of the promised land. And so he naturally wants to get some intelligence. He needs information about this city, so he sends these two spies. Now this kind of alludes back to Numbers 13 and 14. Back in Numbers 13 and 14, this was 40 years before this moment, Moses had sent 12 spies into the promised land to scout it out. One man from each tribe. Joshua was one of those guys from his tribe. And when uh, they came back, most of the spies, 10 of them, were filled with fear. They saw the giants of the land and they said, there's no way we can beat these guys. We should just give up now. But Joshua and his friend Caleb, they stood up and said, no, we can do it. God has promised this to us. Let's be faithful to our faithful God. And then we're actually told in Numbers 14.10 that the people were so filled with fear by the, the majority report from these spies that they were so angry at Joshua and Caleb for saying they should still go. They picked up stones to stone them to death for just saying, let's be faithful to our faithful God. And so God disciplined the Israelites and they wandered in the desert for 40 years until that whole generation died off. Well, the whole generation except for two guys, Joshua and Caleb. And so here Joshua now, he's in charge of sending the spies. He does it a little bit differently. He only sends two. You know, it could be that Joshua was thinking, man, if, if in the first time, if it had just been me and Caleb, right now we'd be celebrating the 40th birthday of the nation, not mustering up for battle at 60 years old. You know, oof, right? He also sends them secretly. See, if these guys came back with a bad report, Joshua didn't, wasn't going to have a crowd waiting for him to hear he was going to make sure if, if those boys come back with a bad report, the only one that they're going to tell is me. I'm going to make sure they tell nobody else. Uh, we've heard uh, wisdom comes with experience. And I would say it's probably better said that wisdom comes with evaluated experience. And that's what we see Joshua kind of doing here, demonstrating that here. So these two spies, they remain unnamed, but they risk their lives. They have to go seven miles just to get to the Jordan River. Then when they get to the Jordan River, they would look for some fords that where the water was shallow enough that they could sort of wade across. But as Mike told us last week, this was a time where the tide was high and they probably had to swim a good portion of this Jordan River. And then when they got across the Jordan River, they had to sneak into Jericho and they'd start kind of walking the streets, trying to blend in, trying to gather information. And then we see here in uh, going back to verse one, so they went and they came into the house of a harlot whose name was Rahab, and they lodged there. So we're now introduced to the central human character of chapter two, this lady named Rahab, but we're told she's not just a lady, she's a harlot or a prostitute. Yet God in his providence has led the two spies to her house. 
Because see, God had a bigger plan for Rahab's life. He had a greater vision for her than she realized. God had a plan of redemption for Israel, and he also had a redemptive plan for Rahab. And as you consider your own life, I wonder if you believe that's true of you, that God has a greater vision for your life, a greater plan of redemption than maybe you realize, or that you can envision for maybe somebody that you love. Because see, every person that we lock eyes with, including the person in the mirror, is somebody that's been created in the image of God. And God has a redemptive plan for each and every one of us for his purposes and for his glory. Now going to verse two, we read this. It was told the king of Jericho saying, behold, men from the sons of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. And the king of Jericho sent word to Rahab saying, bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. So these two spies apparently weren't as good at being undercover agents as they thought. <laughs> Their cover's blown pretty quickly. Now the king of Jericho, he just assumes Rahab is going to be loyal to him. So he's like, bring him out. He assumes she doesn't really know why they are there. And so, you know, he, he just kind of thinks this is all going to work out. But he doesn't realize that Rahab is actually a lot smarter and a lot shrewder than he thinks. So verse uh, four, but the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, uh, yes, the men came to me, but I did not know why they, uh, I did not know where they were from. It came about when it was time to shut the gate at dark that the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hidden them in the stalks of flax, which she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued them on the road to the Jordan, to the fords. And as soon as those who were pursuing them had gone out, they shut the gate. So what we see here is that Rahab chooses to save the lives of these two spies. She hides them under flax on her roof. So in this uh, time, in this culture, the, the roofs of the homes would be completely flat and you could actually use it for many things. We'd go up on the roof. And in this case, they had taken flax. They harvested the flax. They'd soak it for about two to three weeks in water so that the fibers would separate. And then they would dry them out on their rooftops, later uh, weaving this into linen. And she hides the men here. Now to the king's soldiers or the king's men, she, uh, she acknowledges, yeah, these guys came. But I don't know why they were here. She, she gives a little, you know, feigns a little ignorance here. But then she tells the soldiers of the king, like, hey, if you guys step on it, like they barely left. So if you guys move, you can catch them. Come on, you guys, you guys are fast, go. And they take her at her word. They don't even search her house. They just go on really what's gonna become a wild goose chase because they're heading back to the Jordan River and these spies are still sitting up on the rooftop. Now, as we read this, you might be wondering something in your mind, like, well, hey, wait a second here, is isn't Rahab lying to these soldiers? Like, is she, is she not telling the truth? And there's no way to water it down. Yes, she is telling a lie. And over the centuries, some Bible commentators have uh, sort of condemned her as being uh, one who bears fault wit false witness here and that she should have just told the truth. Um, other Bible commentators have commended her saying, well, she chose the greater good of saving their lives and this was a time of war. 
The uh, New Testament actually doesn't make a direct reference to Rahab's methods here. But what is very clear from the New Testament is that she is commended and set apart as an example of faith for saving the lives of these two spies. For example, James 2.25 says, and in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. So moving on to verse eight, we now see the motive, what motivated Rahab to save these spies really and, and turn against her own people. Well, we read this. Now, before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the terror of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. When we heard it, our hearts melted and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. So this really is the climax of chapter two, Rahab's declaration of her faith. What she says here is so powerful. She is actually claiming that she believes in the God of Israel. She is claiming that she believes that God is fulfilling his promises to his people, that he's faithful to the promise he made to Abraham. And she uh, knows that God is giving the land of Canaan to the Israelites. She also speaks here about the absolute fear that the Canaanites have of the Hebrews because word has reached the streets of Jericho. The, the word is, you don't wanna mess with the God of the Hebrews. Some of you might remember like growing up, there might've been that one kid at school or that group or that gang. It's like, you don't wanna mess with them. Well, that's kind of the reputation the Israelites have built because word has gotten to Canaan. And you would imagine, Brad has talked about this, but with the trade routes that went from the Sinai Peninsula down to Egypt, all the way up to Canaan, People would go from, from all over the known world at that time to trade in ivory and spices and weapons and all kinds of things. And they would see Egypt decimated. The greatest empire of the world at that time, their army swallowed up in the Red Sea, cities destroyed, economies devastated. And then as they would travel up north to trade, you look over in the desert and you see two million people just wandering around. I mean, that's more than twice the size of Fresno and Clovis put together, all just walking together. Can you imagine the sight? And you would think, my goodness, are they, are they lost? Are they getting ready to sneak attack someone? Well, not sneak attack, but are they getting ready to attack somebody? And word would spread like, hey, look, the, these guys, Egypt oppressed them and, and they were destroyed for it. And then they would hear about these kings. Mike talked about this last week. He took us to Numbers 21 where we read about the Amorite kings, Sihon and Og. These were giant kings, like literally. Remember, Og had a bed 13 and a half feet long. These were kings who made uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and Shaquille O'Neal look like shrimps. <laughs> and when Israel went to their land and said, hey, we just want to pass through peacefully, these kings came and opposed the people of God and said, no, we're, we're bringing out our armies. We're going to destroy you. You can't pass through our land. And so God defended his people. And God gave the land of the Amorites. And so word has reached uh, Canaan. 
Word has reached Jericho that the, the, the most powerful empire oppressed Israel and they were defeated. The two most powerful kings in our region opposed Israel and they were defeated. No one who stands against the Hebrews can stand against them because God is with them, the most powerful God. And there's recognition that if you find yourself opposed to them, you're not going to be able to stand. But notice the response that this stirs in Rahab. She actually declares now that God is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Her language uh, reflects the same language about God that Moses would declare of him. For example, Deuteronomy 4.39, Know therefore today, Moses says, and take it to your heart that the Lord, he is God in heaven above and on the earth below. There is no other. So Rahab declares God to be supreme over all other gods, even her Canaanite gods. And as with all of the Old Testament, the fullness of, of who God really is won't be completely revealed until the New Testament, but she is responding to the light that she has been uh, given, that has been revealed to her in this moment. And you know, if you're in Jericho, there's really two ways to respond. Uh, one of those ways, well, we know that all of them were told everybody's hearts are melting in fear because God is terrifying. He is all powerful. He is almighty. And, and he's a terrifying God in his power. So everybody's heart has melted. But two ways to respond. When your hearts melt in fear about who God is, you can respond by sort of hardening your heart and saying, well, I don't care if he's God. I don't care if he has power. I don't care what he's about. I am going to stand against him. That's what Pharaoh did. That's what Sihon and Og have done. That's what most of the people in Jericho are doing. They're sort of doubling down in rebellion against God. That's one way to respond. Another way to respond is as Rahab does. Yes, be terrified that God is all-powerful. But as your heart melts in fear, also let your heart soften and realize that this God is also good. This God is a creator. This God is faithful. And soften your heart to him and submit to him and, and worship him and align with him and trust him and learn what it means to be faithful to a faithful God. This is the choice that Rahab has made and friends, this is the choice. These are the choices that we still have today in response to God. As I consider this in my own life, you know, I think back. Uh, growing up, I was raised with a Christian worldview. I was taught the truth of God and the gospel and his word. But really, by my early teen years, I had walked away from the church. I was living in rebellion. I was living as a you might say a prodigal son, just in the muck and the mire. I was out getting pretty much wasted every weekend and all the lifestyle that goes along with that kind of choice of, of you know, how to do things. And as I went deeper and deeper down sort of the rabbit hole of darkness, I knew that there was a change needed. I was 19 years old and it just seemed like, you know, going back to church, getting right with God seems like it'd be a good choice. But at the time I said, no, I'm not gonna do that now because I'm only 19. Maybe when I'm 23, you know, let me live college. Let me kind of do my thing. And then when I turn 23, I'll think about going back to church. Well, after I sort of thought that, some interesting things happened. My car got wrecked. Several relationships I had got wrecked. And I began to look in the mirror and I actually realized that I despised the narcissistic, pleasure-seeking 
uh, darkness that was all about my life. I began to despise who I was. And rather than hardening my heart then at that point, I was led to soften my heart before God. And it was at that point in my life that I surrendered, truly surrendered my life to Jesus Christ. And it's not easy to make a change like that, but man, it was good. It was beautiful. I began to experience the life-transforming power of God's spirit, the hope of the gospel, new purpose, new relationships, new life. And this choice is with us all today. This choice is also with us on a lesser scale, just on a day-to-day basis, right? The spirit of God wars against our flesh. And I think about just daily life. I just think about, you know, I have a choice. I could speak kindly to my wife right now, or I could put another brick in the wall that's being built between us. I could choose to take another drink or not. I could choose to pray about this person or I could choose to gossip about this person. We face these battles every day and we can double down or we can soften before the Holy Spirit. And how about you? How have you responded to God? Which direction is your heart headed today? Because he is more powerful than we can imagine but he's also more personal than we might dare to believe. Or the way Tim Keller has put it, the gospel is this, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. So we see the gospel here, friends. And now moving on to verse 12, Rahab says, now therefore, please swear to me by the Lord since I have dealt kindly with you, that you also will deal kindly with my father's household and give me a pledge of truth and spare my father and my mother and my brothers and my sisters with all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. So the men said to her, our life for yours, if you do not tell this business of ours and it shall come about when the Lord gives us the land that we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. So we see here Rahab is demonstrating her faith by protecting the spies and also by asking for the protection of her family. And she uses a very significant word here, one of the most significant words in the Old Testament. It's kindness, or in Hebrew, hesed. It's found about 250 times, and it's what you might call a bit of a, it's like a, you know, when you have those mashup songs, it's like a mashup word because there's so much meaning packed into this one word, hesed. It means to be loyal, steadfast, or faithful, to have a loyal, steadfast, or faithful love based on a promise, agreement, or covenant. It speaks to kindness. It speaks to loyalty. It speaks to love. It speaks to keeping promises. And, and, It's used of God's character. It speaks to God's faithful love to keep his promises to his people. And it's almost as if Rahab is saying here, uh, as God is faithful, so I will be faithful to you and would you be faithful also to me? Because she knows God is all powerful, but she also understands that God is good and faithful by using this word that is so frequently applied to God's character. And perhaps we need some reminders here as well. Uh, It could be that we have taken such a sort of uh, lackadaisical approach to God, uh, sort of like he's, he's the genie, he's the grandpa who just needs to do whatever I want, and when he doesn't, I get to be mad at him, and he's just my buddy or whatever, and maybe we need a little more reverential fear of, of, of the holiness and the power of God. 
Or it could be that to us, God has seemed very cold and distant or he's powerful, but he doesn't care. And we need to be reminded of the kindness of God and the goodness of God and the faithfulness of God. That Jesus would say, uh, he numbers the very hairs on our head. I mean, we don't even do that for ourselves, but he knows that detail about you. That the New Testament would tell us his kindness leads us to repentance. So he's good, he's faithful. Rahab appeals to this characteristic. And then verse 15, it says, then she let them down by a rope through the window for her house was on the city wall so that she was living on the wall. Now, that's an interesting little architectural note there that when she let the men out of her window, they actually were outside of the city. So, so archeological ex, uh, excavation has suggested that Jericho probably had a double wall structure. So there's a wall around the city. Then there's a second wall, like an outer wall and an inner wall. And between the two walls were several houses, usually of those who were poorer, which would make sense that a house of a prostitute would be inside those walls among the poor. Um, this also just kind of reinforces what Mike talked about last week, that, that God is, is stacking the deck against himself. Jericho's a city, not just with one wall, but two walls that got to come down in order for it to be taken. And we're going to see that in future chapters. But uh, now we go back to verse 16 and uh, we see this. She said to them, go to the hill country so that the pursuers will not happen upon you and hide yourselves there for three days until the pursuers return. Then afterwards, you may go on your way. The men said to her, we shall be free from this oath to you, which you have made us swear, unless when we come into the land, you tie this cord of scarlet thread in the window through which you let us down and gather to yourself into the house, your father and your mother and your brothers and all your father's household. It shall come about that anyone who goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head and we shall be free. But anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head if a hand is laid on him. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be free from the oath which you have made us swear. She said, according to your words, so be it. So she sent them away and they departed and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. So here Rahab continues to show her concern for the safety of the spies. She directs them and says, hey, uh, I sent the king's men um, to, the, to the east, to the Jordan River. So you guys now, you go west, you head out to the, the hills, which are right near Jericho. And these 1,500-foot uh, limestone cliffs were honeycombed with caves that these, these uh, spies could then hide in. So they took three days. Uh, the king's men finally gave up, went back to Jericho, and now the spies, they head back. But we also see here more details about this oath of protection and Rahab's responsibility to put a scarlet cord in her window and to tell her family to come into the house. Now, much has been made of the potential significance of this scarlet cord over the years. Um, it's been seen as connected to other parts of Scripture. For example, two of those would be, one would be looking to the past, Exodus 12 with the Passover. If you recall with the Passover, when the 10th plague came upon Egypt and the firstborn of the land were killed, the Israelites were told, paint the blood of a sacrificial lamb on your doorpost and the angel of death will then pass over your home and stay in your house and everybody in the homes will be protected. And so the same thing now is here, anybody in Rahab's home under this scarlet cord will be protected. 
And we know from Jesus' words at the Last Supper that ultimately the Passover pointed to him as the true sacrificial lamb of God who would die for the sins of the world and death would then pass us over if we trust in him, eternal death, and would be given eternal life. And so in the same way then, this scarlet cord has been seen as sort of a symbol or a type of Christ, the blood of Christ, that his redemption would come for our sins as he shed his blood on Calvary's uh, cross. Listen to this quote from a man named Justin Martyr. It's from the early second century. This, is a, this guy was an apologist who dialogued with Roman senators and philosophers. And he said this about this thread. He said, the scarlet thread also manifested the symbol of the blood of Christ by which those who were at one time harlots and unrighteous persons out of all nations are saved. So we can see shadows of the gospel here in Rahab's story. And now to verse 22, we see that after hiding, the spies report to Joshua, they departed and came to the hill country and remained there for three days until the pursuers returned. Now the pursuers had sought them all along the road, but had not found them. So they take Rahab's advice and they make it back. Then the two men returned and came down from the hill country and crossed over and came to Joshua, the son of Nun, and they related to him all that had happened to them. They said to Joshua, Surely the Lord has given all the land into our hands. Moreover, all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before us. So their conclusion, Joshua, it's time to go. God has given us the land. The Canaanites are melting in fear. Let's do this. And you can just imagine if you were Joshua in that moment, or if you could see him in that moment, that he must have had just a big smile, grinning from ear to ear, as he looks at these two young spies, he's probably thinking, oh man, just like me and Caleb, chips off the old block, right? Joshua and Caleb Jr., he's experiencing a moment here of redemption. He remembers when they were the only two who would stand against the whole nation of Israel saying, we can do it. And everybody told him they couldn't. And now here he is 40 years later, two young men after his own heart. You know, as we get older, we like to look at younger people sometimes and say, you remind me of me. Now, usually they look better than we actually did and they're more skilled, but anyway, but no, that's what Joshua is doing here in this moment. He's saying, you guys are like chips off the old block, right? And you know, I wonder in your life if you've ever had a moment like that, perhaps where God showed you that you were faithful during a difficult season and maybe you felt like you had no one to stand by your side, but then later he redeemed it just like he does for Joshua here. Or maybe you're still waiting for that in your life. Can you trust God? Joshua waited 40 years for this moment. Well, the intelligence is good. The report's good. God is good. And now it's time to go into the promised land. So as Mike asked last week, I want to ask this week as well, why is this here for us today? 3,500 years later, why do we have this here Last week, one of the things that Mike said that really hit me was God is a faithful God who is all about the redemption of his people. And as we consider our stories in light of Rahab's story, this theme of God's redemption shines through so powerfully and clearly. And what does Rahab's story reveal about God's heart for redemption? I just want to leave you with two, two thoughts. Number one is that God's redemption often comes to unexpected people in unexpected places. If we had been told back in chapter one that when the spies were going to get to Jericho, there would be a person there who God was already at work in. 
and who was going to help them, our first guess wouldn't be the house of a prostitute. Yet this is exactly where God's redemptive plan was already at work. And I wonder, friends, where have you seen God work? Where have you seen God bring redemption in unexpected ways in your life or to unexpected people in your life? Some of us are saying, that's with me. I can't believe that God would save somebody and redeem somebody like me and, and just to have that gratitude. And wherever it is, think about those moments. Hold on to those moments. Thank God for those moments because if not today, sometime in your near future, you're going to face a situation where it's going to be difficult to trust that God has a redemptive purpose in mind. There's going to be a person where it's going to be difficult to believe that God could really redeem that person. And we need to trust God through those times to get a vision of his redemption for whatever or whoever in our lives. Who is that for you maybe even right now? What is that for you even right now? Because Rahab shows us that God loves to work in unexpected ways, often through the most unexpected people. In her case, a societal outcast, somebody who's among the poor. God is at work. And the second thought is this, is that God's redemption always leads to transformation. Here at the well, you might hear us say something like, come as you are, but don't stay there. And that's because we want to be authentic here. We don't want to put up masks. We don't want to put up pretenses. We want to just fully and freely, openly confess, yes, we are broken. We are a mess. We are struggling. We need a savior. <laughs> if you're looking for the perfect place with the perfect people, don't come here. We're broken. We're a mess. We come as we are because God's forgiveness and God's healing and, and God's transformation, his redemption are for all but we don't want to stay where we are because we also want to be restorative. We want to experience healing. We want to experience ongoing freedom in Christ from addictions and from marriages that are on the brink of divorce and for relationships that are broken and, and all the different things that weigh us down. We want to restore each other in a spirit of gentleness. And so we see Rahab's transformation as she responds to the light that God has given her. She embraces the truth about who God is and what he's doing. She declares her faith in God, and then she takes courageous steps of faith to actually live it out, and she's transformed by God's power. She goes from a prostitute to a pillar of faith. She is an example to us of what it looks like to be faithful to a faithful God, and think about it, 3,500 years later, we know her name. I mean, that would be like somebody knowing my name or your name in the year 5523 AD, because of our faithfulness to God. That's pretty crazy. I already mentioned James 2.25, where she's held up as this example of faith, living out works through faith uh, in James, but also in Hebrews, together with Sarah, she's one of only two women mentioned in the great hall of faith. We read, by faith, Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she welcomed the spies in peace. And you know what else is that Rahab is one of four women who are included in the genealogy of Jesus. Along with Tamar and Bathsheba and Mary, Rahab is mentioned there as well. That in his human ancestry, he can claim uh, Rahab as one of his ancestors. And so friends, have you embraced the gospel so that God's redemption and transformation can begin in your life? If you've embraced the gospel, how are you experiencing God's transformation? 
like Rahab, are we, are we making our faith known? Are we declaring the works of God in our lives? Are we sharing our stories? Are there steps of courageous faith that we are taking? Have we considered what might be next to do that? What does it look like to embrace God's redemption and to live it out? What does that look like for you today? Where is God leading you? What can you learn from Rahab's life? And again, those words from Justin Martyr that the scarlet thread also manifested the symbol of the blood of Christ by which those who were at one time harlots and unrighteous persons out of all nations are saved. Because friends, we are all Rahab. We have all been harlots and unrighteous before God. And like Rahab, we can all come to a holy and all-powerful God and freely experience his redemption through Christ. We can be made new as we surrender to him. Jesus went to the cross to pay for your sins and to pay for my sins. He was buried and he was raised to life. By his blood, he paid that price. And by his power, he was raised from the dead. And to believe in Jesus is to believe in his death and to believe in his resurrection and to embrace him and to, to repent, to turn from our own way of living and say, no, you're Lord, you're Savior, I surrender to you. And I don't know all of you in this room and I, I don't know if I'll get the privilege to meet every single one of you, but I do know this about you. I know that there's a God who loves you and I know that before you were ever even born, he envisioned your life with great purpose and value. And I know that Jesus died on the cross for you. I know that he is here with us today because he's risen from the dead and he will forgive you for everything if you just ask him. If you just turn to him, every regret, every dirty little secret from your past or even anything you're trying to hide today, he knows it all and he is willing joyfully to forgive it all. He rose from the dead and he's here tonight. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. And thank you for the story of Rahab, which shines to us as an example of what it looks like to be redeemed. And Father, we would pray for each person here that we would allow our hearts to be softened before you and to embrace your hope, your love, your goodness, your redemption that's available to us in Christ. Lead us to take whatever courageous step of faith is next in our lives. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for joining the Well Community Church Podcast. Be sure to check out thewellcommunity.org or our app, The Well Fresno, for more information on us, ways to connect, service times, and locations.